0: greeting card candy Cupid there was a blizzard it was twenty below she was fifteen clean and stupid as pure as This week on Broadway for Sunday, April 7, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in a broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play God Shows Up began performances April 6th. Congratulations, Peter, at the a- Actors' Temple on 47th Street with an opening on May 13th. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway, Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Are you right? Are you getting any sleep either? You know, uh, God <laughs> God shows up.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, the actors have it now, so uh, they're doing it. And uh, yes, I can uh, sleep now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> sleep well, no more. <laughs> <laughs> I walked out of that.
0: Yeah. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FoulSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Jennifer Ashley Tepper is uh, joining us by telephone. Um Folks who listen to any of our broadcasts know that we are huge fans of Jen, and we talk about her all the time. But for those uninitiated, she is uh, a, a, a Broadway historian, a force of nature, a uh, 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 someone who has changed the Broadway landscape. Although she won't admit to that. Uh, as um, Jen, what's your official title at Fifty Four Below? Uh, a
2: creative and programming director.
0: She is. Everything at 54 Below. And, <laughs> and uh, also, Be More Chill, executive producer, Be More Chill. And one of the projects that she has shepherded for many years is the Jonathan Larson project, which is now being released by Go- Ghostlight Records. It's out. And uh, Jen, thank you for coming back again and talking with us at Broadway Radio. Thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure. To, uh, give us the genesis on the Jonathan Larson project.
2: Sure. Um, I have always been so in love with Jonathan Larson's work, uh, and for the last five years have been putting together the Jonathan Larson Project, which is a song cycle that was never done before of his unheard songs. Uh, So I spent five years going to the Library of Congress, um, researching by talking to his friends and family, digging through all kinds of songs and material of his uh, to create something that would be brand new of his, like the you know new musical theater concert he never got to do, and so we got to do it for two weeks uh, this past fall at Juilliard below. Actually, one week, sorry, twelve performances, uh, and then we've gotten to release it as an album this past week.
0: Wow, that is really really great to, to hear. Tell me about um, you know how uh, how you were able to narrow it down to. F- to fit into there are certainly things that you had to choose one over the other so how did you narrow Mm -hmm. down the selections here and was it by committee or just by or did you do it or tell us about your collaborators
2: yeah you know the uh, as far as Figuring out which songs should be in the Jonathan Larson Project—that was all me. Um, but you know, my collaborator on the project, Charlie Rosen, who was music supervisor, orchestrator, and arranger, uh, was the magic behind taking all of these, you know, demos and uh, lost songs that had never been fully realized, and examining with them, examining them with me to figure out Jonathan Larson's intention and the influences and the style, um, and you know, creating it and making it into a full show. So um, I spent like a long time going through all of the songs first, so uh, and figuring out, like, how they would fit together, you know, as I spent time at the Library of Congress, there were a few songs from the very beginning that I knew had to be part of it, that I just knew from being, you know, in Jonathan Larson's world, and actually, the very first thing that, you know, set fire to the project was I got to do a miniature version of the concert, like a, a very miniature version of five songs um, in the lobby at City Center before a per- per- performance of Encore's Tick, Tick, Boom Um, And that was the genesis. I started talking to the family about expanding it into a full concert. Um, But there were songs that I knew from, you know, the PS Classics album, Jonathan Sings Larson, and from just studying his work, uh, like one of these days is on that album. And that's a cut song from Superbia that I immediately knew this should be in the Jonathan Larson project. Uh, there's a song called Love Heals that Sherry Renee Scott sings on one of her albums, um, and it's also um, been released now as part of the Rent film. Uh, so there were certain like, lesser-known songs I felt like should be in it. And then most of the songs that are in the project, though, were discovered at the library and had not been ever you know, publicly recorded or publicly heard in concert. Um, and the pieces kind of started coming together as I spent time at the library thinking oh, you know, he was writing such political work, let's figure out which of the, you know, which are the songs about politics that kind of knit together. Um, and, uh, you know, it was certainly a focus of mine. I didn't want it to be like all cut songs from Rents or, you know, all stuff from his pop, you know, vernacular, I wanted it to really show how he was writing with such versatility. So that was another aim of it to go, okay, this song is like amazing. And it's like an old school saloon song. And this song is incredible. And it points to how he would, you know, collide pop and musical theater later. So there were a lot of considerations at play. And certainly, you know, I found over, over a hundred songs and, you know, there were far less than that in the project there, you know, it was, it was hard to narrow it down, but at the same time, when I discovered songs that had to be in it i i knew
1: all right now um i remember he worked on a show called jp morgan i forget the rest of the title do you know what i'm talking about
2: yeah jp morgan saves the nation
1: okay anything from that in this
2: there's not actually, and you know, there's dozens of projects he worked on that there's nothing in. He was very prolific, and I think people, um, you know, he died so young, very sadly, mm. but he also worked on musicals for, like, almost 20 years before he did, and the only one we really knew was Rent and then Tick, mm. Tick, Boom, so there's tons of projects that are not featured, um, but there's, you know, the work that is is pretty extraordinary.
3: You mentioned the on-course uh, production of Tick, Tick, Boom, but uh, but s- uh, some years after that, there was the, the really wonderful off-Broadway production that had two of the cast members that you have <laughs> in this project, Nick Blameyer and George Salazar. And George Salazar, of course, is, is now the breakart, breakout star of, uh, of Be More Chill. So that, uh, but you weren't involved with that production of Tick, Tick, Boom, were you?
2: I wasn't. But, you know, I love Keen Company's production of Picnic Boom. And I I did a talk back after one of the performances with one of Jonathan's um, close friends. And I was around it. And, you know, I've been close with Nick and George for many years. So it was amazing to me. They were cast in that. And I always wanted them to be part of the Larson project.
3: I agree. I thought it was a wonderful production that really made me cry. (laughs) I remember that it
2: made me cry. Uh,
3: Some random observations about this terrific album, and I I did not see the live show. I regret that I didn't. But uh, first of all, I noticed there's a song. This is so fabulous. There's a song called Out of My Dreams, which, of (laughs) course, is the same title as a song from Oklahoma. But this is a very different (laughs) <laughs> very different kind of a song the 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 hook of it is you left my life stay out of my dreams which is <laughs> like the opposite of, of of Oklahoma so i think that's just great and um there's a couple of songs on the album that that have i guess a special meaning for me there's the, the first number which is so incredibly catchy and engaging and melodic green street. And I, I went to NYU. So I, that means a lot to me. <laughs> uh, I, I spent a lot of time there. And then there's this fascinating song called iron Mike, which is, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know it's it's kind of like it has like a, a wonderful nautical sound like something you would hear from the last ship or but it's about mm-hmm. an oil spill it's about a guy who causes an oil sp- uh, causes an oil spill and um and it mentions Arthur Kill which is off Staten Island where I grew up so I was like oh I didn't expect that to come up in a song
2: <laughs> that totally. was really no, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And, you know, Green Street is one of my obsessions. And Jonathan wrote it when he was 23. And I found it on a tape at the Library of Congress. And no, none of his family and friends that I talked to had ever heard of it or had any memory of hearing it. And it. Um, it's an extraordinary I mean we turned it into an opening number for the full cast uh, and its I think it's such a great song um, and then you know who else is writing a song about the Exxon Valdez oil spill and, and using his voice that way you know he was doing such extraordinary things and then you go to Out of My Dreams and I'm so glad you're enjoying it which is you know Krista Rodriguez taking Being a Pop Diva all the way but that was Jonathan <laughs> trying to write songs for the radio and hoping that you know Whitney Houston would record his song someday and, and sending out like those kinds of demos so it's such a wide variety of songs and I'm so glad you're enjoying
3: it. And one last thing I noticed, uh, I noticed maybe the, these were songs that he thought would not be used again. And so uh, there were some elements that he, it seems to me, uh adapted for other songs. For example, this uh, the vamp of the song Valentine's Day, to me, sounds mm-hmm. a little similar to the, the vamp, I guess you would say, for Johnny Can't Decide from Tick, Tick, Boom. And then Find the Key sounds a little bit like 3090, but not, not even, yeah. I mean, not even, not, not even, it's not trunk songs or anything. It's just like a similar style and you can see where he maybe thought, well, I didn't use that, you know, this is not going to be heard. So I'm going to kind of rework that for these two songs, these two fabulous songs in Tick, Tick, Boom.
2: Totally. Well, the thing is, um, Find the Key is a cut song from Tick, Tick, Boom. So the musical fabric in that kind of connects it to their Oh, okay. Well, a little bit why. Yeah, yeah, that's the mystery there. But the funny thing about the vamp for Valentine's Day, and Jonathan loved Valentine's Day, and I think he absolutely took things from songs he thought wouldn't be heard and put them in later work that he thought would. Um, Valentine's Day, though, was fascinating to me because that beginning vamp, Um, which is done vocally on the demo, we figured out we were, you know, putting it into the show with people doing that vocally. And then Charlie and I went, oh, no, Jonathan on his demo was trying to emulate instruments that he was later going to integrate into the song. So it was Mm -hmm. such a um, historian expedition to discover things like that. Um, And, you know, there are little nuggets throughout the Jonathan Larson Project that definitely point to later work. You know, uh, Out of My Dreams literally has the lyric us versus them in it. And, you know, of course, he went to being an us instead of, for once, instead of a them. Like, I never thought anyone would hear that. I'm going to, you know, create that into something new for rent. So that was really fascinating as well. Yes,
1: yes. Um, you've interviewed a lot of people, Jennifer. Indeed, what would you ask him if he were alive today?
2: That's a great question. You know, I would be really eager to know what were the musicals that he was going to write next. Like, I, mm. I really, after talking to a lot of his family and friends, they all said, um, you know, Rent is so political, but what he was going to write next would have been incredibly political. Um, and I would love to have just heard about that from him.
0: So, Jen, um, you've mentioned a number of times that, uh, that you've spent a, a, a hours researching at the Library of Congress. Um, uh, what do you... <laughs> How did all this information end up at the Library of Congress? Was it the Larson family, or did did people do it? Uh, yeah, contribute to it piece by piece, or how did that happen? And what was the Larson's family involvement in the project?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, when Jonathan passed away, the family took all of Jonathan's papers and everything that he had, and they um, gave it to the Library of Congress. So that's how it ended up there. Uh, but what's extraordinary is that Jonathan really kept so, so much material. You know, I went through so many things at the Library of Congress that, you know, they're not actually in the Jonathan Larson Project, but they did inform it. And it's, you know, notepads full of just like his musings and, and you know, like pads from the diner that he worked at where he was working out song ideas and every version of every script. And he just like, he kept such a log. And what's really extraordinary also is like, I have his floppy disks, which um, we're not at a point technologically yet where we have a lot of very, um, you know, well-known... People who were keeping track of their work that way because he died so young. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. So I can see, like, oh, he was working on this song until 2 p.m. and then he played a game of Minesweeper. And so it's like a very strange way to um, kind of research that hasn't, it has little precedent. Um, The family has been so phenomenal. And, you know, Julie Larson is the whole reason that this got to happen. Uh, Jonathan's sister, Julie, and her sons, who are Jonathan's nephews, uh, Matt and Dylan, have been part of the project as well. Just as far as, you know, they let it happen. They were super supportive. And I would discover, you know, songs and send them to them and they would, you know, be really excited to hear them. So um, they've been like instrumental in making this all happen.
0: When you uh, explain, you know, the type of research that you were able to obtain, it, it gives nor- it gives such a different meaning to how do you document real life.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: it does. So, uh, tell us about the uh, some of these recording sessions and how the project ended up at Ghostlight and um, and this awesome video of Valentine's Day and uh, all this other mm-hmm. stuff that you're you're bringing out to us.
2: Yeah, so it was my dream to get these performers um, in this show. Like, I I still can't believe we got to do this with the people that we did. Um, Lauren, Marcus, George Salazar, Nick Blamire, Andy Mientis, and Chris Rodriguez. Um, And our incredible, like, music team and band bringing it to life. So um, from the beginning, it was like we knew that the show would hopefully catch fire the way that we wanted to. And then um, that week at 54 Below was really extraordinary. And luckily, Ghostlight Records said, let's make this into an album. You know, this has to be preserved, Um, which was, you know, thank God, because I really am so excited that these songs are out there in the world. Uh, And the recording sessions were, I mean, they really were extraordinary. Uh, The whole cast. Cares so much about this work. Um, it it really felt like uh, you know, like I I've never seen more crying in rehearsal. <laughs> you know, we all like it. It really meant so much to us, and um, just the fact that you know Lauren Marcus gets to deliver this show stopping hosing the furniture. That's like one of Jonathan's masterpieces, and it's never been recorded. And everyone at 54 Below, you know, every night people were just like, "Holy, how is wow." So blown away by it, but by the song, by her performance. Um, And I feel like that's like, you know, every song and performance, but that's one that I've been listening to a lot today. And uh, recording that, I just remember her doing like this incredibly challenging, you know, Jonathan Larson showstopper. And after the first take, us being like, well, we got it. because Everyone is so committed that like it just it all came out so wonderfully. So we're really proud of the album. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm really excited for people to hear these songs and go, oh, you know, Jonathan Larson had so much in him. He was so versatile. Um, there are things we haven't heard of his that are incredibly worthwhile.
0: Before we uh, let you go and get your coffee and bagels for Sunday morning, um, let's uh, change gears for a second and ask you uh, about your experience as an executive producer on Broadway. Uh, What has that been like for the last six months for you? Have you slept at all?
2: (laughs) I haven't slept much, and actually um, right now I'm in the middle of, I'm producing Joe Iconis' next new musical as well, which is Broadway Bounty Hunter off-Broadway this coming Mm -hmm. summer, so at the moment I'm juggling quite a few things, Uh, but Be More Chill has been obviously, you know, the most extraordinary experience and there's something very gratifying about having worked with the people you believe in most for, you know, over a decade and then getting them explode onto Broadway in this way together with something we all so believe in. Um, You know, yesterday I was at the theater because one of our understudy went on and made his Broadway debut and that's someone that we didn't know before Be More Chill and now it's like this you know we just get to add to the family the family gets to grow and all these audiences are loving this musical that you know Joe wrote that so many of us have created and worked on for so many years so it's been exhausting and wonderful every step of the way and continues to be um, and we're just so proud of it.
0: Uh, you have a, a quick word of advice to anybody who wants to become a producer on Broadway and what what do you know now that you didn't know six months ago about producing a show on Broadway
2: That's a great question um, you know my advice for people who want to be producers, is truly always just start somewhere. You know, like produce a reading with ten of your friends and like eat pizza in a basement and just start. Um, a lot of people, I think, are just intimidated by how big it is. Um, but also, you know, starting D More Chill Off Broadway and now doing another Off Broadway show. It's like there are other ways to get into it other than just like launching yourself to you know the the Palace Theater. So uh, just kind of getting started. And I think you know the thing is that I didn't know six months ago, and I think I did know it, but it's certainly something I've um, learned about is um, it's an interesting thing when you're collaborating with so many close friends of um, you know who needs to know what and what's going to be helpful and if you're venting about an annoying part of your day is it helpful to the person that has to you know act in the play that night and vice versa you know we've all um, kind of been working together in basements and barns for 10 years and it's like you know, I, my joke that I always say is like, Will Roland is used to hanging up the lights, but like he can't hang up the lights like he's not a union stage fan. So um, <laughs> getting used to the fact that we have all these, you know, as the group grows and as what we're doing grows, like there are more people that come on and being able to figure out what the boundaries of, um, you know, this next step is has been an interesting challenge the whole way Um, when, you know, we're used to doing it as I said, like in a scrappy way. So that's been interesting and and certainly, um, you know, a positive experience as the show has gotten bigger and bigger.
0: You said the Palace Theater and as a theater historian who's written a number of books about all the different Broadway theaters, what have you heard about the new Palace?
2: Oh my God, I don't know what's going on over there. And the billboards are still there, the old billboards. Um, I, I keep hearing it's still getting ra- like raised up, but I, I don't know. What have you heard? Well,
3: they have just – I mean if you've been by lately, uh, yeah. there is – it is now completely surrounded by uh, scaffolding or boarding, boarded yeah. up or whatever I you would, want. To. And they uh, – there was just an article recently that I guess they preliminary – Uh, steps have begun Uh, they haven't actually started to raise it yet but that sounds like it's going to be soon so we're going to all keep our our fingers crossed for that the rumor was inch by inch
0: one inch at a time they were going to raise it one inch weight
2: yeah It's really weird, but at the same time, like there are Broadway theaters that we wouldn't have if they hadn't been able to build on top of them. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we'll, we'll balance it out and stay open-minded, I guess.
0: <laughs> this too shall pass. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio on a Sunday morning and talking about the Jonathan Larson Project. It is now available at Ghostlight Records and uh, all your favorite places to get uh, music and uh, Broadway show albums. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. We look forward to talking with you soon.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you. There goes a lover sitting and writing this song.
0: I'm sitting on Green Street and I don't need money, honey. Green Street, watching the world waltz by. Green Street, that's the one that's sunny, honey. Section Michael and Peter, you both got over to Classic Stage Company to see *The Cradle Will Rock*. Did they hand you scripts as you walked in so you could uh, you could read lines from the audience?
1: <laughs> no, not at all. Uh- This is one of my favorite uh, shows of all time. Uh, I remember vividly the first time I ever heard the album. The first notes galvanized me, and I truly believe if I were on a desert island and there were electricity there, uh, this would be one of the records I would take with me. Uh, I've, I've loved it for years and years and years. So... I was uh, extraordinarily disappointed with this production. Now, of course, this is a very famous show for being locked out of its theater by the Federal Theater Project because it was getting a little too close to the bone about what it had to say about unions and um, dictatorial people and what have you. So... Um, they had to find a theater in a hurry and they did and they, and they went on, but not in a conventional sense because actors' equity wouldn't allow their people to perform on stage. So they actually stayed in the audience and they stood up when the time came to speak or sing. Uh, the musicians, um, could have played, but, um, it would have cost more money because they weren't under the federal theater project contract. They would have to be under a Broadway contract. So as a result, Mark Blitzstein, who wrote the book, music and lyrics, uh, sat on the stage and played the piano. Uh, And since then, it's usually been done on the piano. And frankly, there have been recordings with a orchestra, and I find them very odd and intrusive because I'm so used to the piano. Uh, So, no sets, no costumes, and yet, I believe that the audience in that theater. The Venice Theater that night in 1937 had an easier time understanding of what the show was than in this production by John Doyle. Uh, For one thing, there's much too much doubling. Now, of course, we're all used to doubling. We know um, people have to do that because of economic reasons. All set, fine. But usually they're unimportant characters. So it's perfectly fine that in the first scene we see David Garrison, who's going to play Mr. Mr., the dictatorial guy uh, who really runs Steel Town, um, with a a cap-slung uh, pulled far over his face so he can't be discerned and, and, and that's fine because he's he's playing a guy who's trying to pick up a, a prostitute and um it, it's it's fine you know we, we a guy who's trying to pick up a prostitute probably would have his hat slung down low so that nobody would see who he was but but tony Yazbek uh, one of our favorite performers and certainly uh, a great asset to uh, musical theater, um, has to play two parts in this show, and it's not a good idea to have him do that because both of them are significant roles. One is Harry Druggist, and uh, he's a very happy guy. He's got a son who loves him. They're partners in, in a, a, a drugstore. But Mr. Mr. Wants Somebody Killed um, because uh, Gus um, is trying to start a union, and he doesn't want a union in the steel town. So uh, he's going to use Harry's drugstore as a place to um, kill him. Well, Harry doesn't know what to do. I mean, because after all, Mr. Mr. controls the banks, and he he has a mortgage and what have you. So this is a significant role, and what happens is very dramatic, and um, certainly we get used to seeing Harry Druggist. And then to have him come back later, uh, Tony Yazbek, come back later, is the hero of the piece, Larry Foreman, who fights Mr. Mister every step of the way, uh, is, is just too much. I mean, we're so bonded with Harry Druggist, it makes it so artificial. Now, you might say that Cradle Will Rock is an artificial show. Notice the names of the people, Harry Druggist. Larry Foreman, meaning that he's a foreman on a job. Um, There are others too, Reverend Salvation, even Mr. Mister, which ironically enough became the name of a rock group. But yes, it is... no question that um mark blitzstein or stein i don't I really don't even know which it is um painted in primary colors because his message really was what he wanted to get across. yes, it's very agitprop, prop, no question about it. A lot of people say he was influenced by Kurt vile and the music i don't hear that I have to say um I think he was his own man, and by the way, if it is a case that uh he he was indebted to Kurt Weill. He certainly paid him back with uh, by adapting the Three Penny Opera, which became the longest-running off-Broadway show in those pre-Fantastic 50s. So um, – but the thing is, I think one of the problems of not just the doubling, where you see the chorus playing the victims in Night Court and a second later playing the high-toned Liberty Committee um, and then back again to victims without moving an inch uh, – they're all in the same costumes. I don't know why he didn't think to put a tr- steamer trunk on stage full of um, little accessories. I mean, for example, we have a worker who then plays Mrs. Mister, uh, the um, culture vulture who uh, who has great pretensions. All right, have her take a mink stole out of a, a, um, a trunk and put it on her so we'll know that she's Mrs. Mister because a second earlier she was playing a worker and Anhold Ward has everybody in Blue-collar clothes, and that's what they're in for the entire night. Now, you may say, well, the Federal Theater Project, after all, um, was no frills. Yeah, but if you know that 1987 revival of Flora the Red Menace, they made it very clear from the outset— Uh, It was supposed to be that type of thing, too, a WPA project, a federal theater, one of those things, Um, that indeed this is the way things were done. And here you don't get that. And so it's very, very confusing. And I swear that if I didn't know the show, I'd have have no idea what was going on. So um, that's an enormous problem for something that um, really still speaks to us today. I mean, it's amazing how many lines really resonate, even though the show is over 80 years old first thing you know they'll have you deported uh what is this russia um the liberty committee even reminds me of what all this talk about religious liberty and uh for that matter mr mister has his own university <laughs> we certainly know somebody else in power <laughs> who had his own university too so uh so it still speaks to us on um, more the pity I'll, I'll grant you but uh it it uh, the, the wonderful thing is that um, the way that people sing the score is very natural. So hearing the score again was a great pleasure for me. Uh, but, wow, um, I, I have a lot of albums of The Cradle of Rock, and I can really um, listen to it at home. So I just wish that there hadn't been so much reliance on doubling. And I know budgets are tight. I understand that. I wish the costumes could have been more definitive. But um, otherwise, I have to give a shout out, not just to Tony Yazbeck and David Gaberson doing the best they could under very difficult circumstances, but to a woman named Reva Webb, who plays uh, a pretentious artist in one scene and has a glorious soprano while doing it, and plays the sister of um, a victim of Mr. Mister, um, who has the wonderful ballad, Joe Worker Gets Gipped, and she does that extraordinarily well. So um, nice to listen to. Not as much fun to watch. All right,
0: Michael, what did you think?
3: Yeah, I completely agree about the costumes. It's so ironic. Uh, In 2013, uh, the Encores Off Center series was uh, initialized with a production of The Cradle Will Rock. And in that case, um, they went completely the other direction. Sam Gold, who is uh, currently uh, providing the extremely apparently – controversial direction of King Lear on Broadway, uh, had decided that the cast for that production was going to be a completely informal wear. Um, so in that one, you, you, uh, you miss the difference between the haves and the have nots because everyone was in informal wear. And in this production, <laughs> you miss it because everyone is in, you know, not rags, but just very, you know, worker's Garb. So uh, I don't know why uh, both both of these directors seem to not understand that that's such an important part of the story. Uh, I guess it's just willfulness. I don't I don't get it. Um, and as far as the doubling, I, I agree about that as well. Uh, specifically, as far as Tony Yazbek playing two roles, um, I completely agree. I, I'm sure the reason they did that is it's interesting. Larry Foreman uh, doesn't show up until late into the proceedings. Uh, and so I guess that's why they uh, John Doyle thought that Tony could play that other role as well because he's hanging around without anything <laughs> specific to do but I don't think that's a really good reason um, uh, I interviewed Raul, Raul Esparza who played Larry Foreman in that 2013 Encores Off-Center production and I uh, I dug up my interview and I and I noticed that I, I said to him in the 1947 Broadway revival of the show Larry Foreman was played by Alfred Drake and then there was an off-Broadway production in 1964 with Joe or Bach.
1: and uh, Let me add to this. Uh, the first time I ever saw it was in the 70s at Brandeis University, and I think even an otter person played Larry Forman, somebody you don't associate with a serious role, and that was Dick Sean. Wow. <laughs> yeah, huh? And he was good, by the way. Anyway, I'm sorry, Michael, go on. No,
3: no, thanks for that, because, you know, how many people know that? That's- <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, and, uh, and then Raoul replied, it's interesting. Foreman is considered the male lead of the show, but he doesn't show up until very late in the proceedings. His first entrance is so long delayed. And, you know, but I think that was kind of intentional <laughs>
1: oh, on, yeah. on, on Blitstein's part. Way, the way fairy tales have the prince uh, on the White Horse arriving very late in the show, that same type of thing. Sure.
3: Yeah. So I think that that shouldn't have been, you know, well, I mean, I think there's a reason for that. Uh, I, uh, I did appreciate the fact that this production was done acoustically with no amplification whatsoever. Uh, in theory, I appreciated it. Uh, by the way, I would say, I think four of the cast, uh, Members take turns playing the single upright piano, um, and that's fine. Uh, But there were some audibility issues for me from some of the singers, especially since it is a three-quarter thrust setup, and so sometimes they're facing away from you. Um, So I I wouldn't say I missed a lot of the lyrics, but I I did miss some of them, and um, I think that was an issue as well. And also, I don't know... I mean, I guess it just must be hard to, re- to obviously to recreate the the uh, the sense of uh, urgency of the original production, but it did seem like there was something very flat about it. Um, And I don't know if it was just the, the the particular performance I attended with that, the energy was off or if it's, or if it was the the directorial style of John Doyle, but, but I did think it was kind of flat and it it certainly didn't have the kind of searing effect that ideally it would have. But um, you know, I, I mean, it's such a historic piece and I'm, uh, I'm always fascinated to see it. I certainly wasn't going to miss it. And it is a very strong cast overall. I think Eddie Cooper uh, was especially wonderful in it. And it's always uh, nice to see David Garrison, uh, who I, I guess I hadn't seen on stage in a while. Uh, he w- he was, I thought he was a really good Mr. Mr. Uh, Sally Ann Triplett, Rima Webb, um, really good people in this production.
2: All right,
0: so uh, Cradle Rock is at Classic Stage Company on Thirteenth Street, playing through May nineteenth. So uh, check it out if you're able to. Next up, uh, Peter and I got down to the Public Theater, where we both saw White Noise. Uh, so Peter, why don't you get us started on White Noise?
1: Well, White Noise is the new play by um, our one of our most distinguished writers, Susan Laurie Parks, and um, it's an awfully long play, and I'm not sure that it needs to be as long as it is, but it does pack a wallop because it does deal with a, a very, very strange premise, and that is the fact that um, a black man decides that he's going to be someone's slave, a white man's slave. A good friend of his, by the way, that he will be his slave. He will actually sign a contract. He will do it for 40 days. In a way, he's not exactly a slave the way slaves were in the uh, 19th century, because by the end of the 40 days, he's going to get a check for $89,000. Um, as it turns out, the, the white man is quite wealthy. Uh, He hasn't had much success in his career, but he's through um, his birthright, he does have a lot of money. So it's not quite the same thing, but still uh, 40 days worth of uh, slavery is is no fun, needless to say. Why does he do it? He feels that if he is under a white man's protection, he will not be harassed by the police. Now, that's a very strong idea, and I think it's a worthwhile one, that uh, this is another way of saying Black Lives Matter— and another way of saying that many black people are cons- considered guilty uh, before they're proved innocent by uh, many law people in this country. So so that, I think, is a very good idea. And I can understand why after Susan Laurie Parks had this idea that she would indeed run with it. Um, I think she's run too much with it in the sense that there's a lot of padding in the play. There's a lot of uh, soliloquizing in the play. That said, the four people in it are marvelous, especially David Diggs, who uh, plays the slave, you should pardon the expression. Uh, <clears throat> such a natural actor. I just love actors who don't seem to be acting, who seem to be talking, who just seem to be having a conversation with you. And even though I've just complained about the soliloquy, the one he has that starts to play is very effective because he's not orating, he's talking. He's very, very natural, as I say. So I really uh, think he's a marvelous, marvelous performer, and we're very lucky to have him. Uh, so he's the standout, but of course he has the most important role. But um, Thomas Sadowski, uh, who we know from uh, Neil Nabude, um, plays Ralph, the friend. Um, so... He's uh, very effective as well. Looking a little thinner, I think. Uh, congratulations, Thomas. I know how hard it is to lose weight. So um, he uh, he's tremendously effective as well. Now, he has a girlfriend, um, Misha, played by Shira Irving, uh, who has a TV show called Ask a Black. And there's a lot of fun to be mined from that, though I do think that they go to that well a little too often. Um, but also... Um, Leo, uh, that's the David Davies character, has a girlfriend as well, Dawn, uh, who's been a lawyer, and she gets involved in the proceedings because she has to deal with the contract and all that. So um, a fascinating premise, no question, but it's three hours long, and I'm surprised that along the way that there wasn't some uh, effort to be made to cut. Uh, I'd love to see this play without the fat on it because um, the message sometimes gets lost. You forget where you are because there's so much fat, but but not on Tom Sadowski.
0: (laughs) Peter, I uh, 110% agree with you. Uh, it, you have said exactly what I was thinking. Uh, I saw it last night uh, with uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, fellow broadcasters, Janetessa Fox, and um, we were uh, trying to figure out who said the thing, uh, I'm sorry, I I couldn't, I didn't have enough time to write a short letter. I'm sorry this letter is so long, I didn't have time to write a short one, <laughs> uh, and, because uh I agree with you that this is a really interesting topic and presented really well. The four actors are amazing, but it absolutely needed to be edited, and it's hard to it's hard to edit and get the same uh, get the same beats and punches in and things like that. But it was more than three hours, and and I felt that it it probably could have been done a little bit less. With that said uh What a cast! what a really interesting uh topic and i 'm hoping that we don 't this is not the end of it i don 't think that this is quite something to be transferred to Broadway, but I hope that this continues on uh in some other in some other fashion because and I love the the whole bowling aspect of it the the concept is oh, yeah yeah you know <laughs> that they uh and, and uh, that they uh, – well, the four of these characters went to college together, and um, and they were partnered up differently in college, but they all right. bowled together. And it seems that the, the inference was Thomas Sadowski's character's father owned bowling alleys, and uh, so they got to go to the bowling alley called The Spot and – just the four of them while it was closed and they got to bowl on their own. And they, they pulled off this very interesting concept of bowling, uh, on the stage at the public. And, um, and, well,
1: uh, now that you mentioned that, you know, I also have to give them credit because um, so many times when you actually see them ball, yeah. um, granted the bowling ball goes um, uh, under the seats that you're sitting in, so you don't actually see the pins of course, but you have to be convinced that uh, the type of <laughs> bowling ball thrust that happens does do what indeed uh, it will now say on the, shall we say, scoreboard that tells you how, uh, how many pins were dropped down. And I thought they did very well at that. You would think that there would be a gutter ball or two uh when there was supposed to be a strike, but that or uh, vice versa, but that didn't happen at all. They're very good bowlers,
0: mm, yeah they are so uh a, a lot of fun uh the the concept of of how this was brought about on a on a stage in a small stage that and made it work uh and believable um uh um I guess that's it. Michael, you're scheduled to see uh this show? I'm interested to hear what you say about this Yes, I'm going
3: this week. Yeah. I'm All sorry right. to hear I'm sorry to hear about the length.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um okay, so we'll talk about it again after Michael sees it. I'm interested to hear what you say. And uh Thomas Sadowski um is uh I, I think he's uh a, a new a new dad. Uh, I think within oh, right? within the last six months or so. So maybe he's uh, yeah. maybe he's running around chasing the kids. So right. yeah, <laughs> <you> know, <geez. laughs> losing some. <laughs> but I, I I didn't know. I've always thought that he's been very thin. But you know we'll see.
3: <laughs> no, actually I, I I noticed that weight loss a couple of years ago. And I, I... oh yeah oh okay. that's that's really so I think he started to
1: work in t v and film uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh and uh yeah, t v does make you ten pounds fatter, doesn't it okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and so uh and um Zoe winters, who we had seen in uh, small, small mouth sounds small mouth sounds and red speedo uh, at at uh new York theater workshop yeah, work um and I was shocked that she didn't have any Broadway credits. Um, but I'm supposing that we will see her on Broadway or, God forbid, she's going to jump over to television and film. But uh, but certainly she had a, a great showing for herself. So that is uh, White Noise at the Public Theater. Uh, Michael is going to see it, so we will talk about it again soon. It's playing through May 5th down at the Public. Next up, uh, Peter, you got to... Um, Oh, actually, Michael, you got to Redbill Theaters, The White Devil, uh, down at the Lucy Lortel. So tell us about that.
3: Yeah, I was a little late, but I'm glad I got there. Uh, this is an extraordinary production of a 1612 play, uh, uh, directed by Louisa Prosky of uh, John Webster's The White Devil, and it's uh, it's very much, uh, you know, uh, universally and 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 uh, ever ever. Uh, Relevant because it's about sex, religion, and politics, uh, you know. And when is there ever uh, not a lot to say about all of that? Uh, one uh, of the most significant aspects of this production, I have to mention before I forget, is that um, the Lucille Lortel Theater has been configured as a reconfigured as a three quarter thrust. Uh, set up which I I never I don't think I've ever seen in that theater anything other than the traditional proscenium I had been saying for years that I hoped that theater would get a some kind of a renovation yep. because it, it really, really needed one. I, I never anticipated that it, this would happen, but I have to say, certainly for this production, it works really well. I think it improves the sight lines greatly. And since they, don't, uh, they haven't been using the balcony or the mezzanine or whatever you want to call that upper level for years, that's not an issue as far as the sight lines. So they might as well just do what they can to improve the uh, you know the the sidelines and the setup on the main floor. So I was really really happy to see that um, the set, uh, interestingly enough, reminded me somewhat in its basics of um, the set that we recently saw for that Jeremy O'Harris play Daddy um, that was done at the Signature Center. And uh, the costumes are very modern day. Uh, it's uh, there, there. There's no attempt at period. Uh, garb or or sets uh, for this production uh, you know so that's the decision when that was made I mean first of all it's probably a lot cheaper um, but it it does um, help to you know to underline the fact that Things like this are still happening all the time, and it's about these these noble. uh, Most of the characters are noble people, and they're just, um, you know, there's adultery, and there's murder, uh, and there's all kinds of. uh, Robert Cuccioli plays um, a cardinal who winds up becoming a pope, and he's like a a very, very um, maleficent character. I would say he he's he's. Uh, you know, he, uh, he is not what you would think of as a man of God so much as a man of politics, and it's all about power, and And he did a terrific job in it. Uh, the, uh, the, there's several of my other favorite actors in the world in this production, uh, including Daniel Oreskes, uh Jenny Bacon, and two Smiths, uh, Derek Smith and T. Ryder Smith. Uh, I, I think – that this is uh, interestingly enough, I read um, the times review after I saw the show and they said that they preferred uh, that that critic said she preferred the second act uh, to the first. I felt the opposite. I I thought there was a lot of really kind of um, interestingly fun, gory, uh, sexy stuff happening in act one. And then act two, I thought it it seemed like it took forever to get to the denouement. Uh, So I, uh, and and Act 2 seemed much longer than Act 1. I, I actually didn't time it, but it, it seemed like it took forever. So that maybe that's one reason why this play is not done more often because it, it really primes you um, – for, uh, you know, in act one, you'd like, oh, gosh, this is this is really interesting. And and, uh, you know, the court intrigue and the and the machinations of these horrible, horrible people. Uh, but then I, I just kind of found, found like it, it, it devolved in it and it 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 started to seem really kind of almost boring in act two because everything was taking so long to happen. Uh, maybe some judicious editing would be a good idea. Although I understand why people are reluctant to edit plays like this, but anyway, it's the kind of thing that Red Bull does so, so well. They, they really, they're so creative, all of their personnel that every, every show that I've seen there, even if I disliked certain aspects of them, there a lot of thought that goes into them and, and, they're one of the companies that, if you're not aware of them, you really should uh, just really check out what they're doing and try to get to something soon.
1: Um, Michael, do we know that the uh, Lortel configuration is a permanent one?
3: Well, no. I, I was actually meant to try to ask someone that, and, and I haven't had a chance yet. Uh, I I do wonder. I don't think it would be a bad idea. Mm -hmm. It looks kind of like maybe it might be because it it just did. Uh, But I I, I can't really honestly answer that. Okay.
0: Okay. So that is playing down at the Lortel on uh, Christopher Street through April 14th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got over to Theater Lab on 36th Street and saw a play called Charlie's Waiting. So tell us about that.
1: Well, uh, a a really fascinating idea. Um, Here's a a woman who's about to get married. She's already pregnant, uh, quite pregnant, in fact. I would say five, six, seven months pregnant. Uh, And she's looking forward to getting married tomorrow. And, of course, uh, getting married tomorrow also means planning everything and last-minute decisions and making sure that everything is just so because she's a very fussy lady, is this Louise. Uh, And she's looking forward to getting married to Kelly. Kelly, by the way, happens to be a woman. Uh, Stephanie Heitman uh, plays the part, and Sante Elbrich, uh, whom we know from Coram Boy, a show that should have run much, much longer than it Mm. did, um, plays Louise. Okay, so um, the only problem they have at this point in time is whether or not the napkins will be um, folded correctly, except, well, you know, there's not going to be much of a play if that's all there is to it. Um, While Kelly is away, Annie shows up. And um, Louise never heard anything about Annie, um, but Annie seems to have a history with Kelly, quite a a detailed history. (sighs) Well, one of the parts of that history is uh, uh, Charlie, uh, the Charlie of the title, turns out to be an eight year old boy and he is waiting. He's waiting out in the car. Annie has left an eight year old boy in the car. And there's a reason why she expects Louise will take care of Charlie. So for the first 40 minutes of the 75-minute play, Charlie is waiting in the car alone. Annie leaves and says, you're taking care of Charlie from now on. And Louise makes no effort whatsoever to go get the child. Even after Kelly arrives, they make no effort to go out and get the child. I don't know who leaves a kid in the car for 75 minutes. Now, it's possible that Charlie on his own comes out of the car and knocks on their door because that's how the play ends after 75 minutes. We hear a knock on the door. I'm not sure if it's Charlie. Maybe it's Sandy coming back to, um, to uh, get the Uh, change her mind that she's leaving. Maybe she wants the keys back from the car so that uh, she can uh, rescue. I have no idea. What I would like to see is this play as a first act, not the entire show. Let's see a first act and let's see what happens in the second act because that's where the sparks are really going to fly. So uh, a good start on a play. Yes, I will grant you that. Melissa Annis is the writer. And Ludovica Villahauser does a nice job of directing it, too, in this very small space, a charming space, actually, and uh, a very nice set for, a, for a, um, an off-off-Broadway production uh, uh, on, at the Theater Lab, which is on 36th Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues. But uh, I was amazed when the lights went out and suddenly people were taking curtain calls. I really felt we were going to have an intermission. No, that's all there is, and I wish there were more.
0: Okay. So uh, as you said, that's on Theater Lab on uh, 36th Street, and it's playing through April 20th. Uh, Michael, uh, you and I got a chance to see the uh, Broadway transfer of What the Constitution Means to Me. So why don't you get us started on this?
3: Yeah, this show has gotten a tremendous amount of attention uh, from when it was downtown at New York Theatre Workshop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh and so I was really looking forward to seeing it because I missed it. And even though it was extended there, and uh, but now it's on Broadway at the Helen Hayes. Uh, although this is not uh, a production of Second Stage, which now I guess owns runs Second uh, the Helen Hayes. Yeah. Uh, oh, and interestingly enough, uh... oh, did you? Did you uh, notice? Uh,
1: I did. <laughs> if we're talking about the same thing. Would, you, ahead. would you care? Would you please? <laughs> All right, let me let me tell you what I noticed. Uh, it may not be what you noticed, but the playbill actually says the Helen Hayes Theater, while indeed um, the actual marquee says the Hayes Theater. Helen's name has been a uh, first name has been uh, quite absent since uh, Second Stage has opened this theater, and uh, suddenly on the playbill, at least it said Helen Hayes. Is that what you noticed, Michael? Yes, it.
3: It is, and I have to say, I really object to it. Uh, I think they should at
1: least make a decision, don't you think?
3: You know, if if they're going, I want the
1: decision to be Helen Hayes. That's the decision I want.
3: So do I. But but whether or not you know, regardless whether I agree with it or not, they should at least make a decision. I I mean, I've been getting press releases that just say the Hayes Theater, and I oh yeah, oh yeah. and I think I mentioned, I asked at one point, I asked whatever press agent and they said, it's still the Helen Hayes Theater. They're just calling it the Hayes. Well, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, what does yeah. that mean? You know, <laughs> and and of course, we've read that they're trying to get a naming donor uh, for the theater. Uh, you know, God knows how much money someone will have to give them uh, to have the theater named after them. But I guess they have been unsuccessful. I'm talking about uh, second stage now. Uh They've been unsuccessful in doing that so far, so it's this weird um, indecision as to what the the name of the theater is called in the meantime. Is, is it possible that the program for what the Constitution means to me says Helen Hayes because it's not a second s-
1: stage production? Oh, good point. Hmm. oh that that's occur interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. But yes, as I always say, someday we're gonna have the KO Pectate Theater because um they'll sell any naming rights for anything. And of course everybody needs money, so uh, what can you do? Uh Michael, if Heidi Schrecker is listening to this podcast, she'd much rather hear what you thought of her show. Or would she Oh yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well well, um I I guess so I I really thought it was very compelling as far as uh, her well, – the content of it. I mean she – this is about how she as a young girl, as a young woman uh, in high school would give uh, speeches uh, about the constitution at – Places like American Legion halls and things like that, and she funded her her uh, higher education by doing so. So that's that part of it is is based on real life, and uh, she really analyzes and breaks down uh, the Constitution and several amendments. And then there's a a, a section, uh, the latter part of the show, where a young person comes on, and there is a debate uh, over uh, whether the Constitution. Should be should be abolished or not, uh, and uh, you know whether it should be abolished and we start over, or, or whether it should just be preserved and amended, and continually amended. Um, the, there are two uh, young uh, actresses, by the way, who who play the the young person, and they are Rose Dilly. Cyprian and Thursday Williams. I saw Rosalie Cyprian. And there's one other person in the cast, Mike Iveson, who plays, um, well, he (laughs) sort of plays an American Legion person at the beginning, and then he steps out of that character. Uh, I, uh, as I say, I I found the content very interesting, but I I have to say, I, I didn't think there was any construction to this show. And interestingly enough, during the course of it. At one point, Heidi Schreck says something like, if you can't see the structure in this show, uh, that's your issue. Well, I I guess I beg to differ. It really just seemed to me like she was, even though it, I'm sure it it must be, every word of it must be scripted at this point. uh, It, it seems so scattershot and, and so going from one thing to another that, uh, um, and that really bothered me it, uh, someone said it seemed more like a TED talk than a show uh, I, I think if if you're going to present it as a as a play as a show in in a theater in a broadway theater that i would i would really really have liked to see more structure and it it, it um really marred it for me because i felt like i uh, i just felt like it was meandering and i couldn't concentrate uh and although i found every Individual subject uh, and point she was making very interesting. I, I, I was I was personally distracted by the lack of structure. Also, there's another thing. She um, Heidi Shrek I would say is one of those people who, when they project to fill uh, so that their voice can fill a the theater, it starts to become. Somewhat strident and uh, difficult to listen to for uh, an hour and a half. Um, another person I can think of offhand who is like that is Julie White. There are some uh, people like that who they uh, they don't uh, they don't have the technique to project without sounding strident. So I think if you're going to be someone who's going to do a show where you're going to be talking for that long, uh, if your voice is like that, that that is a negative also. And so I was not really um, that pleased with this show that, as far as I could, as far as I've
1: heard and read, it has got nothing but positive feedback until me. <laughs> so, uh, I liked it a lot actually uh, so I'm in the other camp as well uh, it uh, I was very glad that I was um, able to see Rose dele Cyprian because I had seen Thursday Williams downtown and boy both of these kids are terrific and um, this poses a problem for the theater world awards because do I uh, uh, count them as one um, I think I will count them as one um, and uh, they'll if if they wind up getting uh elected by the seven nominators then in Indeed, uh, we'll give them each a prize, but we'll count them as one because they do split the performances. And uh, and speaking of the theater world awards, we gave one to Heidi Schreck a few years ago, and what had happened was she wasn't able to come, and her mother picked up the award. And this is fascinating to me because her mother is a very important uh, force in this play. You find out a lot about her mother, and uh, to to realize that that woman I just smiled at as she came up to the stage to, uh, accept the award really, um, <laughs> is, is quite a woman. And, uh, that was really something to, uh, to hear Ted, Ted talk. Yeah, I guess that's true. And those last 18 minutes, don't they? But she held my attention. Um, Heidi Schreck did far longer than that. And, uh, I really enjoyed hearing it. And in a strange way, she reminded me of Mike Birbiglia because she occasionally interacts with the audience. Uh, Mike Birbiglia is very endearing, uh, when he did the new one saying, I know when people reacted, she does things similar to that too. So um, she makes you feel very welcome in the Helen Hayes Theater. And I'm delighted (laughs) to see her there.
0: (laughs) So Michael, I pulled up the script uh, for what the Constitution constitution means to me. And and the section you're talking about, she's talking about her grandma and uh, the sock puppet and things like that. And then it says, and then when I turned forty, I decided George and the Second, George the Second was lonely, and I bought him a friend, a tiny uh, red and white striped monkey. I named George the Second's, I named George the Second's friend, and to this day, I am married. George the Second's friend is the most important person in my life. Please don't tell anyone. Uh, I know some of you think I've gone off on a tangent, but I promise you, I haven't. In spite of what some people think, this show is actually quite carefully constructed. <laughs> so, uh, I'm Michael. In the ca- will
1: be the judge of that. Right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm in the camp with uh, with Peter. I, I adore the show. I adore Heidi. Uh, I-, I really, really loved this. I did have some problems with the show. I think that the whole second half, bringing out uh, Thursday or the other woman to debate, uh, uh, I'm not sure what that's how that added to the evening because I was really blown over by the Heidi story. And it does give us a, a really insight. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just not sure that it's necessary or connected to Heidi's story. And I think those two things could have stood alone on their own. Um, and 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 that whole uh, ask me a question thing that they do at the very end of the show, uh, it, it feels very pretentious to me. But I, I really like what I really like what the Constitution means to me, and I think it's an important show, and I'm glad that it was done, and I, I look forward for it to be done uh, all over the country and by people other than Heidi. Um, and uh, I think that Heidi's going to go down and do uh, production at the Woolly Mammoth in the D.C. area that was supposed to be happening right now, but then she, she transferred to Broadway, so. Um,
3: It's another show uh, that's largely about how awful men can be uh, to the point where at one point she has to uh, make the point where she says, don't get me wrong. I love men. Uh, But, you know, she does spend a lot of time saying how horrible uh, some of the several of the men in in her life and the lives of her uh, her family and her the women who came before her in her family have been. So uh, that is uh, you're going to get a lot of that, just so you know.
0: All right. So uh, let's move forward into uh, Peter got to see a production of uh, Sincerely Oscar at Theatre Row in the Acorns. So tell us about that.
1: Well, yes and no, James. Um, I didn't make it clear to you when we talked about this earlier that what I really went to was a press preview. And I will say that... um, After the press preview ended, I bet I burned off a lot of calories walking out of there as fast as I could. I only heard three songs. Now, this is a show by Doreen Taylor, and um, I have no interest in coming back as a result of what I saw, I'm sorry to say. Now, what's going on here? Well... Oscar is Oscar Hammerstein So that sounds good, I mean we're very interested In Oscar Hammerstein, um, one of our greatest Lyricists, uh, one of our greatest book Writers for that matter So um, may his um, Reputation live forever And it probably will So here's Doreen Taylor who was introduced to us By the way as a a great singer And a great philanthropist I've never heard anybody in a cast um, Described that way in a press preview But that's how she was described And she's the book writer and performer in this show Now, um, the three songs we heard were Old Man River. Um, People will say we're in love and um, can't help loving that man. And what was truly bizarre was the fact that there are screens behind the uh, performers and supposedly we are told that there are going to be holograms of Oscar Hammerstein uh, on those screens. So, boy, our appetites were whetted to see what this was going to be like. They didn't show us. Okay, fine. Um, What they did show us is it's on the screen when people are singing. So, in other words, when Doreen Taylor sings, Fish Gotta Swim and Birds Gotta Fly, you see cartoony-type images of birds flying, and you see cartoony images of fish swimming. And in case you don't know what a fish is from the shape of the fish, the body of the fish actually has the word F-I-S-H spelled out for you, just in case you don't, um, you can't put it together on your own. So um, later, uh, we certainly heard people will say we're in love. And Azudi Onikawi um, is singing the song, And Don't Stand in the Rain With Me is a lyric. And we see big um, raindrops coming down on the screen projected. I wonder in the show if they do uh, Don't Marry Me from Flower Drum Song, because that has the lyrics um, about children. They'll get splinters in their little fannies. I'd like to see (laughs) the image of that on the screen. Anyway... um, I, I don't think that this show um, is is one that's going to be around very long, so I don't think you have to worry about getting to it, and I don't think you have to worry about missing it. And while it may seem unfair to judge a show uh, just on uh, three numbers and uh, a few graphics, uh, there's that old expression about uh, you don't have to taste every drop of wine in the bottle to know if it's good or bad wine. So, um, so I was uh, tremendously... Um, Astonished, in the worst sense of the word, by Sincerely, Oscar. Mm, Yeah. You went to it, Michael, right? Well,
3: yes and no. Yes and no. I saw an earlier incarnation of the show last year uh, when um, the guest artist was, of all people, was Davis Gaines. Oh, And actually, that was one of the main reasons I went, because uh, he uh, he's based on the West Coast now and he, he hardly ever performs in New York anymore. Uh, so and, you know, it sounded interesting. But gosh, yeah, I mean, that one it was in a different theater and it didn't have any of these projection things. But I was so appalled by it then because it, it seemed like such an incredible vanity production. And also, uh, even worse, there's something you you haven't mentioned, but maybe it wasn't uh, an issue in the press preview you saw. Uh, how many songs did you get? Just to three. Sing? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, incredible as this may sound, when I saw it last year, this woman uh, was singing lots of incorrect lyrics. Uh. And, and can you imagine, in a tribute uh. to Oscar Hammerstein, to sing lots of incorrect lyrics? I, I was really quite shocked by that. So, so I had actually told lots of people that I know not to go to this one under any circumstances for that reason alone. Um, not, you know, not even knowing about the, the projections or any of that. Uh, here's an interesting, uh, little point. Uh, when this, when this production, uh, was announced a couple of months ago, initially the, um, The other person in it was supposed to have been Jonathan Lee Iverson, who apparently is famous as the first African-American ringmaster of the uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. So I thought, oh, well, that is interesting. Uh, and then um suddenly, uh, there a couple a month or so later, there was another press release with another person's name, and with no mention of Jonathan Lee Iverson, uh, even the fact that he had been in it mm-hmm. and was no longer in it. And so I, I you know thought that was odd because usually there's at least some. Kind of statement, you know, artistic differences or scheduling difficulties or whatever. So I wrote to the press agent and asked, you know, why, well, what happened to Jonathan Lee Iverson? And I received a response saying he left the production. Ah, uh, now we know. So, uh, so I don't know if he left because he realized what. You know, how appalling it was and, and didn't know that from the beginning or and, and decided to get out while the getting was good or it could have had nothing to do with that. Uh, but I'm sorry that um, for this other person that he has become involved in this really kind of appalling vanity production.
0: All right. So let's move forward. Michael and I both got out to Babylon Village in the Argyle Theater to see their production of The Producers. Michael, why don't you uh, tell us what you thought about this?
3: Yeah, well, happily, first of all, let me say that this was the largest audience I'd seen um, at the theater and all of the shows that I've seen there. Uh, the orchestra section was basically packed, and I even went upstairs to uh, to, to check out the, the very large uh, mezzanine uh, or balcony or whatever you want to call it, and uh, there were people there too. That wasn't empty either, and uh, the laughter – uh, throughout was was really, really heartfelt, and and uh, I was I was worried about that because uh, I'm sure many of us can attest that the uh, producers, while you know, with the original cast on Broadway was a phenomenon and and one of the funniest things in the history of the theater, it hasn't always worked so well with uh, with other casts and in other productions. But, um, this one uh, was lucky to have as Max Bialystok, Jason Simon, who actually scored as Edna Turnblad in the production of Hairspray that I saw at the Argyle. So he was great. And then someone, um, who was new to me, um, who knew to me, uh, as Leo Bloom, Richard Lafleur, and they were both, really fantastic, uh, managing to be very, very funny without imitating, uh, Nathan Lane or, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) you. Um, yeah, no, I It was there. I was, I was, I was going to get there in a minute, but (laughs) thanks for, for, for jumping in there. Um, also in the cast, uh, this was fun. We had, um, as Roger debris John Salvatore, and as Carmen Gia, John Peterson, and they are a real-life couple, <laughs> so that uh, they brought uh, a lot of fun to that, and I think that their uh, you know you know their their off-stage relationship informed the performances. Uh, John Peterson, uh, some of our listeners may have recently seen in Midnight at the Neverget. Uh, and he is uh, he he's someone who's done a lot and is very very talented but the whole this whole cast was was really Excellent. Directed by Evan Pappas and uh, choreographed by Antoinette Di Pietropolo. Uh, and as I say, um, I mean, I think the direction actually was was one of the strongest suits. Uh, Evan Pappas has, I guess, uh, this was actually news to me. He's been involved with the producers from early on. In fact, he even did um, uh, at least one. I think more than one early reading of it in the role of Leo Bloom, so he knows it intimately and he knows the 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 tropes and he knows the style and he was able to help communicate it to this really really talented cast um so i but but I was so happy that to see this this very, very full house, and to to hear the response be so vociferous. Um, they uh, fairly recently, the Argyle has announced their new season, which starts quite soon in May, uh, with Million Dollar Quartet. Then they're going to have Legally Blonde, The Full Monty, Miracle on 34th Street, which is, here's love, um, uh, The Little Mermaid, and Cabaret. So I think that's a really nice mix of shows for their audience, and I, I wish them the best. And they do really seem to be on uh, an upswing now. It, of course, it's not easy to start a new theater uh, in a in a town that hasn't had one, so I Uh, I'm very pleased and happy and I wish them continued success.
1: Well, you know, what's also interesting is um, something that hadn't occurred to me before, but when you mentioned this gentleman playing both uh, Edna, and Max, uh, John Waters said one of the greatest thrills for him of Hairspray on stage was the fact that now, in high schools, a heavy-set boy would be able to play uh, a major role. And yes. the producer does that, too, sure, because um, we're used to seeing Zero Marcellin, the producers, who was heavy-set. Ranted, Nathan Lane isn't nearly as heavy, but um, especially uh, now, I'm sure, with the workout he's getting in Gary, which I hear is you know, involves a lot of running around. But um, it's Really nice that uh, there are two roles now that heavy-set boys can play in theater without uh, worrying about not being cast because they're not uh, slender enough. So, so thank you, Mel Brooks, as well as John Waters. Yes, and the
3: producers does retain actual fat, fat jokes.
1: Sure, sure. Fat
3: references. So he is supposed to be. I mean, yep. that is part of the character. Right. <laughs>
0: So I have to agree with everything Michael uh, said there. Um, it is uh, really difficult to start a theater, and it seems as though these producers of the producers at the Argyle Theater, the father and son team that are that have put their heart and soul into this uh, and tons of money into this thing, are making a go of it and have a great uh, lineup of shows that are coming next season. So uh, get out there and support the Agaral Theater in Babylon, a quick train ride from uh, Penn Station and a beautiful little village of uh, Babylon, New York. with yes. Great restaurants. All right, Michael, uh, you saw Everybody Rise, a resistance cabaret at Birdland. So uh, quickly tell us about
3: that. Oh, yeah. This was so much fun. This is a, an evening of parody songs written by with lyrics by Joe Keenan, who is, I think, one of the most brilliant comic minds of our generation. Uh, it, it, many of these political parody songs have, have become uh, famous on, uh, on online, on YouTube or wherever, uh, gotten a lot of hits and deservedly so. He, he, he is um, primarily known uh, as one of the, chief writers for Frasier, uh, and one of the best writers for Frasier that, that fabulous TV series. He's also written a couple of, uh, comic novels that are really fantastic and, and that I really recommend, but this was an evening of the, the political songs, um, with a fabulous cast, C- Richard Kind, Christine Petty, uh, Chip Zion, Brad Oscar, um, guest, uh, Artist Liz Calloway, who appeared as Betsy DeVos. And, uh, you know, of course, the fodder, you know, there's so much fodder for political humor in in the current incredible situation in which we find ourselves. But um, Joe Keenan, I guess, also has a real appreciation and grounding in musical theater. And so uh, he uh, and I mean, his his ability as a, as a parody lyricist is, is just Amazing. He he is so, so good at it and so funny and so clever. Uh some of the titles of the songs you can uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess they explain themselves. There was one called I Enjoy Being My Pence. Uh I think you can figure out what song that was, I Enjoy Being a, a Girl from the recently mentioned flower drum song. Uh The Lady is a Trump. Yeah. <laughs> um a song, uh, maybe this is a little less obvious called Don Jr. That was to the music of Goldfinger, um, Omarosa to the, to the, to the music of Oklahoma, uh, click to the music of zip from pal Joey. And, uh, you know, I could go on and on. Oh, uh, there was a song called Betsy, get your gun. That's the one that, uh, Liz Calloway did. Uh, it, uh, it it was just a really really great evening and the audience was packed and uh christine petty um i think she deserves a huge amount of credit cuz i think she was the one who spearheaded this uh, these songs actually being done in a live performance for a live audience and joe keenan i think had to take a little persuasion to to have it done but he was there and he spoke and he was he was just beaming uh i i, I think he was Absolutely thrilled. And I think we're going to hope we're going to see it again. It would be great to to do it as a, um, you know, to to bring it back in various venues. And I hope we see it again at Birdland or elsewhere. Um, A special tip of the hat to Richard Kind, who uh, has recently got a a lot of fame, deservedly so, for his role in co-op the uh mm-hmm. the company cast album documentary spoof on documentary now but here he uh functioned as trump with a ridiculous wig that uh, let me say was no more ridiculous than the actual hairstyle but uh he he is just a, another comic genius and and he um i i i have loved him for years and And it's always a pleasure to see him. He's whenever I've seen him in anything like this, he's always so spot on and just so incredibly well prepared and just knocks it out of the park. So this was a great, great, great evening on Monday, April 1st, (laughs) Um, you know, but, uh, you know, it may have been April Fool's Day, but but uh, what's happening in Washington is no joke. And so this was very necessary as well as being absolutely hilarious.
1: I've known Joan Keenan since he was a high school student at Boston College High School. And even oh, my then he God. Was, even then he was tremendously funny, and it was very clear that he was going to really uh, make his mark in the world, and I'm delighted that he has. Um, so uh, I'm I'm not a, remotely surprised to hear that it, this worked out as well as it did. And yes, uh, sometimes he puts his parodies online, and they are just a delight to read. So hearing them with music must be really terrific, too. Yes,
0: you know the uh, just the amazing fact that the words mean so much, and you can change just a uh, uh, just one word and make the whole yeah, meaning right. change so much, mm-hmm. which is a key fact in Mister Sondheim's work as well. And you also got up to 92nd Street wide to see the lyricist and lyricists uh, series of Sondheim wordplay. So tell us about that.
3: Oh yeah, I mean it was uh, it was great to see uh, an evening of Sondheim in the same week as this incredible night of Joe Keenan, because, uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there were so many Sondheim homages in the, in the Joe Keenan evening. Uh, but this was a, a wonderful program at the 92nd street. Y. the cast, Louis Cleal, Melissa, Erico, Christopher Fitzgerald, Telly, the young Leslie, Margarita and Lauren Warsham. Uh, this show was directed by Christopher Gatelli. I'm not sure, uh, I'm not 100% sure but this may be the first show that he's actually directed uh, in addition to yeah I mean he's he's primarily known as a really really great choreographer. Um the co-hosts of this uh program were Ted Chapin and Jack Feldman. Uh, Ted Chapin, who's uh, still a major figure in the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, and Jack Feldman, who is, uh, I guess, maybe best known as the lyricist for Newsies, but he has several other really great credits as well. Um, this uh, was a, a very enjoyable program. Uh, and I, some of the highlights were um, one of them was uh, a song that Lauren Warsham sang called The Two of You. Uh, and this is probably the biggest rarity on the program. Apparently, when Sondheim was very young, he was uh, very much into the Kukla Fran and Ollie TV show. And he wrote a song for them and submitted it, and they didn't use it. But uh, <laughs> Lauren Warsham sang. And so it's, you know, fascinating to see a really, uh, really, really early work like that. Um, and let's see, uh, other highlights were Leslie Margarita doing the boy from, uh, which is music by Mary Rogers lyrics by Sondheim, uh, under a pseudonym. And this, that's a parody of the, the girl from Ipanema. That's beyond hilarious. Um, oh, here's another rarity. Uh, Lyrics, uh, Sondheim wrote lyrics for something called the Arthur Lawrence 80th birthday song um, uh, with music by Julie Stein. And it was Happy Birthday, Arthur Lawrence, instead of having Egg Roll, Mr. Goldstone. Uh, And one of the lyrics in that was, it relo- it rhymed Arthur Lawrence with our affection comes in torrents. Mm. So <laughs> could be brilliant even when dashing off a, a little tribute song like that. Um, other highlights of the evening sent, I glad we got to hear Melissa Eriko sing send in the clowns, which was really quite special. Um, and, uh, Christopher Fitzgerald did. I never do anything twice. From the seven percent solution, which mm. first of all you don't normally see a guy doing it, uh, so that was interesting. But also, he, you know, his timing and his physicality are so great. So that was a really, really wonderful thing. Um, and yeah, um, there was uh, one song they included: uh, "Multitudes of Amy's." that it was a song cut from company. And, you know, I have to say, I think that's a rare misfire, uh, of Sondheim's and maybe that's why he cut it. Because the point of that song is that he, um, you know, he's in love with, he, he has a crush on and they, thinks he's in love with, and maybe even wants to marry this woman named Amy, who is a character who remained at company. Uh, but he's, uh, he, the, the concept of the song is that he sees her everywhere. And I think, isn't it the opposite when you're when you're really in love, head over heels in love with a person? I think you think of them as a singular individual in the world, and and that they are um, the you know they are so unique. And I don't think you see the person you love in in people on the street. Uh, so I think that that's. Uh, uh really wrong, and that he yeah and and then uh maybe, as I say, maybe he did realize that, and that's why the song was cut because that concept doesn't remain in the in the final version of company, so it, it's it's I guess maybe comforting to see that even someone like Sondheim can occasionally
1: just have a complete misfire. Uh, speaking of misfires, uh, let's talk about the 7% solution. Uh, and, um, and indeed, uh, I never do anything twice because, uh, if we're going to talk about true crimes and misfires, uh, we (laughs) have to talk about Herbert Ross, uh, who after all had a big Broadway history before he went to Hollywood, but there he is directing the 7% solution. And I never do anything twice. One of the great lyrics of all time is not heard very much in that movie at all. It's tremendously truncated. And that song deserves to be heard in its entirety because the wordplay is sensational beyond belief. And I am just... Uh, I heard the song before I saw the movie. Uh, I went to the movie simply to hear the song in context, (laughs) and I was appalled. I mean, it's still a memory that's so fresh. I remember the theater. I remember where I was sitting, et cetera, et cetera, because I was flabbergasted that they did not include the entire song. So shame on you, Herbert Ross, and how Sondheim ever uh, dealt with that. Um, Whether it's Sleepless Nights, Agony, uh, Fingernails Bitten to the Quick, um, more than Ellen J. Lerner ever could, the fact remains that uh, it it must have been so traumatic for him to do all that work and have it decimated in that film. Thank God for Side by Side by Sondheim, which is where most of us first heard it and rescued it. And it really became um, one of the most famous Sondheim songs as a result of Side by Side by Sondheim.
3: Peter, did you— did you not get to this Sondheim wordplay?
1: No, no, I didn't. I'm sorry.
3: I'm sorry you missed Christopher Fitzgerald's rendition because he
1: was just fantastic. And I adore him. <laughs> he's he's a terrific performer, to say the least. So uh, I would have yes. liked it. Yes. No, uh, God Shows Up is taking a lot of my time. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: All right, so that wraps it up for the day. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us. in Apple Podcasts There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to, find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the Things we've talked about today, including lots of videos from The Cradle Will Rock and White Noise and uh, Red Bill Theatres, The White Devil. There's lots of videos this week uh, that have been uh, collected by these companies. Uh, can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia?
1: Yeah, I asked, what do Tony winners Keen Curtis, Randy Graff, Nathan Lane, Anna Quayle, Victor Spinetti, and Scott Wise all have in common? And the answer was they all played more than one role in Tony winning performances. Uh, don't forget that Pseudalist and Funny Thing also plays Prologus. So, though many people um, said, well, he also played um, extra roles in uh, Angels in America last year. So, uh Carrie Winslow didn't forget and was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner, Ron Fassler, Donald Tessioni, Ingrid Gamerman, Brigadude, Fred Abramowitz, and Tony Janicki, who's usually first, and he might have been had he not been in town from Chicago seeing shows. I know that for a fact because I saw him while he was here. Okay, (laughs) this week's question. A real-life and very famous performer, long deceased, is currently being portrayed in a Broadway musical as we speak. This performer actually did one and only one Broadway musical, but it was in the same theater where the performer is now being portrayed. Who's the performer? The current show, the show from long ago, and the theater.
0: All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to broader videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye.
3: Bye bye. Bye. Time to
0: stay busy, hard to stay afloat. Will I be sunk by this lump in my throat? Campaign?